This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 93, The Ashvamedha Sacrifice. Last episode was rather eventful. In part, we got to hear a lesser-known supplement to the Bhagavad Gita called the Anugita. It's interesting that Krishna said he actually forgot what he taught back on the field of war. Arjun also could not remember, so Krishna instead recalled a dialogue that contained similar teachings between Kashyapa and a Brahmin who is nearly done with his mortal incarnations. Following this teaching, Krishna returned to Dwarka while the Pandavas got to work on their grand sacrifice. They needed money, so the brothers led a vast train of laborers and porters to retrieve Maruta's gold. Krishna then returned to Hastinapur while they were still away, but he got there in time for the birth of the heir to Hastinapur, Uttara's son, Arjun's grandson, and Krishna's nephew, Parikshit. If you recall, we met Parikshit way back at the beginning of this podcast. He was the guy who draped a dead snake on the shoulder of an ascetic and got himself cursed to die by snakebite. It was while Parikshit awaited his fate that the Mahabharata was first recited to him by his now ancient ancestor, Vyasa. Since the epic is one vast cycle, we now meet Parikshit at the time of his birth, but he was stillborn. Luckily, Krishna was there to make good on his promise, and he revived the child and saved the Kuru dynasty. Soon after, the brothers returned with their treasure, and the sacrifice was begun. The first step was to let loose a sanctified stallion, and Arjun was sent as the beast escort and protector. This horse was quite a traveler, and in what seems like the space of a year, Arjun and his wandering equine had toured India from one end to the other, conquering the locals as he went. Back in the capital, Arjun was sending a steady flow of loot, tribute, and submissive princes all come to witness the ceremonies being held there. Eventually, news arrived that the horse was finally heading back to Hastinapur, so the king began preparing for the final rituals of the Ashvamedha Yagya. Meanwhile, the streams of guests, tribute, and Brahmins grew into a flood as the sacrificial grounds were prepared. As part of the sacrifice, it says that the king inspected the animals, which included land and aquatic, wild and domestic beasts, plus many old women. Thousands of ethnicities and kingdoms were represented at the feast, along with Krishna, Balaram, and their Vrishni kin. Krishna arrived accompanied by a messenger from Arjun, who stated that he desired this ritual to go more smoothly than the last one. Recalling how Sishupal of Chedi had been killed at the Rajasuya sacrifice, Arjun requested that this one go off without any guests getting killed. Not long after that, Arjun and the horse finally arrived at Hastinapur, and the ceremonies were officially begun. Vyasa addressed the court, saying, The moment for commencing the ritual is at hand. I suggest that you contribute three times as much gold as prescribed, so you will earn the merit of three horse sacrifices in one. That should be more than enough to expiate the sins of killing your own kinfolk. Your final bath at the end will wash all your sins away. The priests then set to work, carefully making sure that everything was performed by the book. Three hundred animals, including the wayward stallion, were each tied to a gilded stake. Then each was slaughtered, cut up, and cooked, ending with the stallion, which was killed and cut up, and then Draupadi was made to sit next to its corpse. Obviously, the copulation thing was a bit too unseemly for this virtuous queen. Then the pieces were taken up and roasted in the sacred fire. It doesn't say whether the old women who were kept with the other animals were also killed and cut up. But when the butchery was over, Yudhishthira gave all the treasure to the attending Brahmins, and to Vyasa he gave over the entire earth. Vyasa said, O king, the earth which you gave me I now return to you. 
Please give me instead its cash value, because Brahmins like cash, not real estate. But Yudhishthira objected. He said, No, the scriptures say that for the horse sacrifice, the charity to be given is the earth herself, so it's too late. I've already given it away. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm leaving for the forest to enjoy my retirement. Now you guys divide up the earth as you see fit. It's all yours now. I wouldn't want to take anything away from a Brahmin. The crowd of Brahmins and even the celestial audience were all quite impressed. They applauded his generosity. Vyasa handled the matter carefully. He said, Okay, you've given me the earth. It's mine, and now I give it back to you. No strings attached. Just be generous to the Brahmins with your gold. Before Yudhishthira had a chance to wriggle out of that one, Krishna jumped in, warning him. You'd better do what Vyasa tells you to do. Probably recognizing that there was no escaping it, the king cheerfully took back title to the earth and then paid out three times as much gold as specified in the ritual texts. Even Vyasa received a huge chunk of change, which he promptly handed over to Kunti as a gift. Kunti accepted the money and used it to aid the poor. When all the feasting and gift-giving was over, the ritual was complete and the guests began leaving for their kingdoms. The brothers, now cleansed of their sins, happily returned to their palaces. This ends the Ashvamedha Parva. The next book is called the Ashrama Vasika Parva. This is the 15th book out of 18, and it begins with Janamajaya asking the narrator Vaisampayana how the Pandavas dealt with their deposed uncle Dhritarashtra now that they were in power. Vaisampayana says that the brothers continued to respect him as if he were their father, although he did stay in retirement. Vidor, Sanjay, and Yuyutsu were put in his service, while the brothers made sure to consult with him on important affairs. Dhritarashtra, in turn, held his nephews in great affection, while all the women of the palace regarded him and his queen, Gandhari, as head of their household. The narrator says that this amiable situation lasted 15 years after the war and horse sacrifice. He said that the one exception to this harmonious relationship was Bhima, who still harbored some resentments over the dice game and the exile. But it appears the feeling was mutual. The old deposed king could not think of his sons without recalling who had killed them all. But it was Bhima who stirred the pot. No precise details are given, but it says that Bhima would countermand his uncle's orders to the servants, and he would have them do something else. Bhima also was not as polite as his brothers, and when the subject of the dead Karavas came up, he would slap his arms and boast how he got revenge on all of them. Word of this inevitably got back to old Dhritarashtra. But despite the grief this brought to him, the blind king never mentioned it to the other Pandavas, who stayed oblivious to the whole thing. It wasn't until 15 years after the ending of the war that Dhritarashtra decided it was time for a change. One day, when the Kurus were all gathered together, Dhritarashtra made an announcement. He said, We all know very well how the destruction of our family took place. It was entirely my fault that I installed Duryodhana as king and let him behave so badly. Krishna, Vyasa, Vidur, and my own wife all advised against it, but I went ahead anyway, and I have paid the price for my folly. It has been fifteen years, and I now desire to expiate my sins. Gandhari and I have secretly observed fasts and vows. My sons do not need my help, because they died honorably in battle, and they are already in paradise. So now my wife and I wish to do something for our own good. With your permission, I wish to leave for the forest, where I shall practice austerities until I die. By now you can guess what all this talk of penance and forests will do to Yudhishthira. 
He wanted to be the one who goes to the forest. He said, you're the king here, not me. Just make Yutsu the king and let me and my brothers retire to the forest. There was something of an impasse as both kings tried to give up the crown and embrace poverty. Finally, Vyasa had to intervene. He instructed Yudhishthira, let the old man have his wish. Don't make him die an inglorious death at home. Allow him to die like the ancient royal sages, in penance in the forest. There's no point in arguing with Vyasa. So Yudhishthira conceded his uncle's desire and gave him his blessing to retire from life in the palace. As if attending their own funeral, Dhritarashtra, Gandhari, Kripa, and Sanjay proceeded solemnly back to the palace to prepare for departure. Dhritarashtra gave a long instruction to Yudhishthira on how to run the kingdom and then summoned all his old priests, servants, and advisors and gave them everything he owned. The date for his departure was set for the next full moon. A few days before that, Vidur came to the palace saying that Dhritarashtra wished for some money so he could perform the Shraddha, or offering to his dead sons and relations. Yudhishthira was okay with that, but Bhim grumbled. Arjun had to coax him a bit. He said, come on, the old guy's leaving for the woods, and he isn't long for this world. Let him have his wish. After all, here he is begging from us, who once had to beg from him. What more could you have asked for back when we were in exile? This wasn't good enough for Beam. He said, why should we pay for anything that brings comfort to our foes? Let Duryodhana and his brothers sink into misery for all I care. We will take care of Bhishma and Karna and all the deserving fallen, but screw the rest, I say. Have you already forgotten how they all turn their backs on us when we're in exile? Why should we do them any favors? Yudhishthira noticed the commotion, and he silenced them with a glance. He said to Vidur, Let him have as much money as he needs. Don't worry about Bhima. When Vidur was on his way back to report the grant, Yudhishthira turned on his brothers. He praised Arjun for his high-mindedness and scolded Bhima. Dhritarashtra conducted a ten-day ritual for the dead, lavishly giving away the pond of his money. Then he donned his deerskin, made offerings to his former palace and servants, and then set off for the woods. Escorted by his loyal citizens and the Pandavas, Kunti walked ahead with Gandhari's hand on her shoulder to guide her. Remember that she had blindfolded herself when she married Dhritarashtra, and the old king followed behind Gandhari with his hand on her shoulder. Kripa and Yuyutsu wanted to follow them into the woods, but Dhritarashtra refused and directed them to stay at the capital. Vidor and Sanjay went with him. As the procession started to drop away, Kunti did not turn for home. There on the road, she announced her desire to leave for the forest with the others. She said, It was my fault that Karna had to be killed. Now look after Draupadi and your brothers. The burden of the dynasty now lies with you. I shall live in the woods with Gandhari, smear my body with filth, perform penance, and look after the old folks. None of the Pandavas were happy about this, and they all begged her not to go. But Kunti was determined, and there was no stopping her. When finally left on their own, the small bevy of penitents set up camp along the part of the Ganga called the Bhagarati River. There, near the battlefield of Kurukshetra, they encountered another penitent king, Satyupa, who had been king of the Kakayas and had retired after the war. After Vyasa initiated them into the life of renunciation, they stayed with Satyupa at his ashram. It says that Dhritarashtra practiced vows and austerities like a rishi, reducing his body to skin and bones, as did Vidur and Sanjay, all dressed in bark, rags, and dreadlocks. The sages Vyasa, Narada, Parvata, and Devala 
all came and stayed with the penitents. Back at Hustinapur, things were not the same with all the old folks gone. The Pandavas lost all interest in pleasure and the affairs of state. After a decent interval, Yudhishthira decided it was time to pay a visit to his elders in the forest. There were so many citizens of all castes who wished to pay their respects that it was a grand procession that made its way to Satyupa's ashram. When they arrived there, Yudhishthira paid his respects to Dhritarashtra, Gandhari, and his mother, but his uncle Vidur was not around. When the formalities were over, Yudhishthira wandered the grounds of the encampment, and off in the woods he saw a skinny sadhu, bare naked, with dreadlocks down to his ass, and covered in dirt and mud. The man appeared not to recognize him, but Yudhishthira knew who he was. He ran up to his uncle Vidur, saying, Don't you know me? I'm your nephew, Yudhishthira. Vidur looked at him blankly, but said nothing. Then he closed his eyes and went into a deep meditation. As he stood there, Vidur's soul left his body and entered into Yudhishthira. It says that by Vidur's yogic power, he entered Yudhishthira's body limb by limb, his senses becoming the king's senses, his breath the king's breath. Meanwhile, all Yudhishthira saw was Vidur's body standing there, now lifeless. All he noticed was that he felt stronger and wiser, and Vidur was dead. When he considered cremating his uncle's body, a voice said, O king, the body that belonged to Vidur should not be cremated. In him is your body also. Do not grieve for him. So I'm not sure what they did with the body. But that night, Vyasa came by and explained that both Vidur and Yudhishthira were incarnations of Dharma. So somehow those two fragments of that great soul were reunited and now Vidur and the king were one. Vyasa then said to them all, I know it's been a long, hard road to hoe, and you all suffer terribly for the many friends, relatives, and loved ones you have lost. Therefore, I'd like to do you a favor. What would you like me to do? Dutarastra answered first. He said, I know that my sons were a bad lot, and they did many bad things, but still I miss them. I have mourned for them these sixteen years, and my grief has not lessened. I would only like to know how they are, to see how they are doing. As he said this, Kunti began weeping silently. Vyasa noticed her and asked what was on her mind. Kunti said, You are my father-in-law, which makes you the god of my god, so I will confide in you the truth of my story. Kunti then retold the story of how she had been living in the household of her father's friend Kunti Boja. And there, as a teenage girl, she was put in the service of the sage Durvasa, who was a guest to the palace. According to the Shiva Purana, Durvasa is an avatar of Shiva, so that might explain his disturbing behavior. She said Durvasa was an ascetic full of wrath who had come to her house for charity. She said she did her best to please him and ignored his abusive behavior. She never allowed herself to get angry, although his behavior merited it. She doesn't give any details as to what exactly Durvasa did to be so repugnant, but only that by her great forbearance, the ascetic insisted that she be given a boon. Fearing that he might curse her if she refused, Kunti consented. And so Durvasa gave her the mantra that eventually made her mother to the gods Dharma, Indra, Vayu, and the Ashvins. Kunti then confessed that as soon as the sage had departed, she tested out the mantra on the sun god Surya. When she uttered the spell, the god divided himself, one part on earth and the other still in the sky. Bowing before him and trembling, she said, I didn't mean it, please go back. But Surya said, Either you let me give you a son, or I'll roast you and the guy who gave you the spell. 
Not wanting to wrongfully injure the sage, Kunti consented, saying, Then let me have a son like thee, O Lord. She said, Wanting to spare the honor of my father, I cast my infant son Karna into the waters. Through the grace of God, I once more became a virgin, just like Durvasa promised I would. I feel especially bad that later, even when he knew that I was his mother, I made no effort to recognize him as my son. Kunti concluded, saying, Whether this was sinful of me or not, it is the truth. I only hope that you will grant the king's request and allow us to see our fallen loved ones once again. Vyasa replied gently, Bless you, there is no fault on your part, because you had your virginity restored. And when it comes to the high and mighty, like gods and rishis, nothing is sinful. Vyasa then addressed the rest of the group. He said, Lady Gondari, you shall see your sons, brothers, and kinsmen, plus your parents and ancestors tonight, like men rising from sleep. Kunti shall behold Karna, and Supadra shall see your son Abhimanyu. Draupadi will see her five sons, her father, and her brothers. This is what I had planned to do even before you asked. But do not grieve for these fallen heroes. They died while adhering to their dharma, and fate cannot be denied. Vyasa reminded them that all of these characters were incarnate souls of gods and demons, Gandharvas, Rakshasas, Rishis, Danavas, and Asuras. In reality, this was a cosmic battle, and these mortal bodies were just pawns in that great game. More specifically, he listed the true identities of those present. A lot of this is rehashing the partial incarnations, see episode 76, but, like the story of Karna's birth, it's interesting, so I'll repeat myself. Vyasa said that there was a king of the Gandharvas named Dhritarashtra, and that he was born on earth as the blind Dhritarashtra. Pandu came from the Maruts. Vidur and Yudhishthira are parts of the god Dharma. Duryodhana was Kali, and Shakuni was Dwapar, as in the Yugas. Dushasan and his brothers were Rakshasas. Bhimasena is from the Maruts like his father Pandu. The Maruts are a rowdy group of storm deities, and are Indra's companions. So presumably Vayu, the wind god, is also a Marut. Arjun is Nara, and Krishna is Narayana, and the twins are the Ashvins. Surya stayed up in the sky, but he also came down to play Karna. Arjun's son, Abhimanyu, who was the Pandava's greatest sacrifice in the war, was Soma incarnate. Drishtad Yumna, born with Draupadi out of the fire, was Agni, the fire god. Sakandi was just a Rakshasa. Drona was Burhaspati, and Ashvataman was Shiva. Ganga's son Bhishma was one of the Vasus. Vyasa concluded, saying, So that is how the gods and spirits disguised themselves as humans to play this drama. And when their roles were finished, they returned to heaven. And now, what you've been waiting for, go now to the river, and you will see your fallen loved ones. I must confess that I put the stage metaphor into Vyasa's mouth because what happens next is awfully similar to a cosmic curtain call. When the royal family and much of the population of Hastinapur arrived at the riverbank, Vyasa bathed in the waters, and then, with a mighty roar, the many thousands of warriors who had died at Kurukshetra began to emerge from the sacred river. Like a curtain call at the end of a play, the spirits still wore the costumes of their former lives, but they no longer felt the old passions. Good guys and bad, they were all healthy, happy, and free of any resentments or bitterness. They were all as beautiful and peaceful as gods in the heavens. Dead sons greeted their living parents, 
Brothers met brothers, friends met with friends. The Pandavas met with Karna and Abhimanyu and the five Draupadeyas, and all the warriors became reconciled with one another. Vyasa gave Dhritarashtra celestial vision, so he might also see his sons. Gondari needed no such assistance, since she had enough spiritual merit that she could see them anyway, without Vyasa's help. Later, it is pointed out that Dhritarashtra had never once seen his own sons while they lived, but only after they had all died did their father lay eyes on them. Something even more amazing happened that night. Since no one there had brought with them any grief, fear, suspicion, discontent, or reproach, they had literally brought heaven to earth for that short while. The reunion lasted the whole night, after which the deceased took leave of their survivors and departed, vanishing before their eyes. Some went back to Devaloka with the gods, others went to Brahmaloka. The Rakshasas went to the land of the Uttara Kurus, or Northern Kurus, a sort of fairyland, I suppose. When the last of the specters had departed, Vyasa still stood in the river. He called out, Let any of you women who desire to join your husbands run down here quick and jump in the river. It seems like quite a number of widows took him up on his offer. They first got permission from their male guardians and then plunged into the sacred river, where they left their bodies and joyously returned to their husband's side. That's all for now. It's been yet another eventful episode. This chapter ends with an especially nice benediction for people like me who narrate the story. It says, That man of learning and science, foremost of righteous persons who recites this story for the hearing of others, will acquire great fame and an auspicious end hereafter. Such a man, as me, shall not have to work hard for his sustenance and will have lots of good luck. As for all you guys listening, you will surely attain the highest goal hereafter. And that's not too bad either. Next episode, the story continues to move at a rapid pace to its conclusion. More deaths, and we'll start a new book. Thanks for listening.